0: Dr. Dale on quail, bringing you the latest news and views about all things quail in Texas. Brought to you by the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation, preserving the wild quail hunting heritage of Texas for this and future generations. Major support for this podcast comes from Gordian Sons Outfitters. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this month's episode of Dr. Dale on Quail. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau. Thank you for joining us today. I know you've enjoyed past episodes when Dr. Dale has traveled, sat down with special guests at remote locations to talk about interesting topics on quail and quail conservation. Well, this month we continue that tradition, Dr. Dale is joined by a special guest from Oklahoma State University, Dr. Dwayne Elmore. Let's go to Dale now in Fisher County.
1: Good morning, Gary. It's uh, great to be with our listeners again this month and I look forward to a special guest with us here today. Going to be talking about some quail research being done up in Oklahoma and some surrounding states up there, but a beautiful day. We're on location at the Rolling Plains Quail Research Ranch out here in western Fisher County. Had a little bit of rain here over the last month, and things are looking pretty good, and I know our listeners will be very interested in the quail forecast, which will be coming up in the October issue, so stay, stay tuned for that. Our special guest today is Dr. Dwayne Elmore. Dr. Elmore is one of my colleagues for the last 10 or 15 years, and uh, a, an avowed quail hunter. And he's come to us from the state of Tennessee, so I've asked him for will to give us his elevator speech on where he came from and how he wound up at Oklahoma State.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, I grew up in Middle Tennessee, and a few decades too late for Bob White, most of that country uh, was void of upland birds by uh, you know at least by the the 80s. And I did have a few opportunities to hunt growing up with the only quail hunter that I knew in my my home county. So I I got a little bit of a taste of it, but I really fell in love with it in graduate school and eventually got bird dogs and lived out west for a few years and hunted uh, lots of different species of upland game birds. So when the opportunity came to end up at Oklahoma State, uh, I knew that was a perfect place for me where the east meets the west. And uh, so I've been there for 15 years.
1: Well, let's delve off into your hunting exploits just a little bit. What kind of dogs do you have? German Shorthair.
2: Yeah, that was my first bird dog, and I think like a lot of people, whatever the first dog you get, you kind of tend to stick with it.
1: So I'm assume, assuming that, uh, you, did, you got your master's degree up at Utah State, is that correct?
2: PhD at Utah P- State. Okay. Yeah. Where would you do your
1: master's work at? Uh,
2: Mississippi State University, and uh, I, actually my project was on Morning Dove, but had Wes Berger on my committee, okay. which a lot of people probably heard that name, so got a lot of uh, uh, the quail bug from from him.
1: Absolutely. Well, out there at... Um, Utah, I guess you had an opportunity to hunt a number of species with German short hair, and I think you've probably hunted most of the quail species too. Which one do you like the best?
2: Of, of the the quail, I, I think probably my favorite to hunt is gambles quail. I really enjoy the country they're in. Um, but you know, I've hunted yeah, I've, I've hunted all the, the quail and and most of the grouse in North America. In fact, I had one dog that I think she I shot seventeen species over her. Yeah in her life, so yeah, that's pretty special.
1: Well, I'm gonna jump forward a little bit, but uh, you're one of the replacements for Dr. Fred Guthrie, who uh, left Texas and went up to Oklahoma State to uh, occupy the Bolenbach Chair, and I will get into that in more just a minute, but uh, had Dr. Guthrie come out to Pampa a number of years ago to speak one of our Masters classes, and that was about the time he was doing research on what they called the hunter-covey interface, basically putting the Garmin GPS collars on bird dogs and on hunters and seeing how much country and overlap and so forth they had. And I'll never forget the comment that Fred made. He said, you don't ever want to hunt with Dwayne Elmore because his average speed was like 4.3 miles per hour. I said, you can't keep up with him. So. Uh, the older I get and the heavier I get, I, I think I would agree with Fred. I, I look at your physique and you look like an elk hunter to me, so I'm gonna stay with some of the more pot-bellied quail hunters, <laughs> I think. Um, Dwayne, again, uh, tell us a little bit about your appointment up there at Oklahoma State, and uh, is it all extension, or, or do you have a split appointment, or, or what?
2: I'm primarily extension. 75% of my job is extension, so I do a lot of uh, outreach with landowners and agencies. Uh, that have various wildlife management objectives, but uh, galliforms, you know, quail, turkey, grouse, that's a big part of what I do. And the other part of my job is research, and the bulk of my research is focused on upland game birds.
1: Well, again, I've, I've walked that line before, and I know that uh, I started out as a 100% extension. I saw and had interest in things that just weren't being researched by my mm-hmm. research colleagues, yep. and so I finally argued and, and was able to carve out a 25% research appointment I felt like I did about 100% of my effort on 25% appointment. I'm sure you did the same thing, too.
2: Yeah, you know, when you're out with landowners and on ranches and with agencies, you know, there's so many things that come up as research needs. And so always trying to to, to help them find the, the answers they need to better meet their objectives.
1: And then also, again, you talk about the clientele that we dealt with in those outreach and extension settings, whether those be cowboys or uh biologist for the game department or whatever. Their voice sometimes is lost in the shuffle, and uh, we have the opportunity to, to hear it from the horse's mouth, so right. to speak. And I've, I've always taken that as a great, uh, something I really like about my job was getting to, to work with people that are on the land every day. And I, I try not to dismiss anything that they say they saw. And that may seem ludicrous to me, but I don't say BS because I don't know what they saw. Right. but. Uh, eyes and ears that they can serve for you is really impressive out there.
2: Yeah, I mean, when you work for a land grant, you know, the mission of the land grant is to take uh, stakeholder questions back and to to the university, do the research, and then make sure the information gets back to that stakeholder. And I take that very seriously. I think that that is a very important job that that we have to do and and, and you have to listen and, you know, come come to a, a property with Open eyes and 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 really um, listen to people and spend time with them. Right. I
1: I often told the story during my career at Texas A&M that according to the model, you know, you and I travel down. In my case, travel from San Angelo to College Station twice a year to get educated by our research colleagues, and then we go back to the hinterlands and distribute that. And I said, if if I followed that model, I might be busy two hours out of one day of every year. Just not that much research. At least at Texas A&M at the time, that was applied research and aimed at things that I would think were critically important like quail populations and I sense it again that y'all have turned that ship quite a bit up here at Oklahoma State and kudos to you for that uh, and the uh, the products that y'all have been able to and the team let's talk about your teammates up there a little bit so the Bolenbach chair uh, has been split into two you assume part of that and then mm-hmm. who, who has the other
2: part yeah I'm primarily responsible for the extension portion of that and then Dr. Craig Davis uh, he's primarily responsible for the research but in reality, we work together very closely on lots of projects. Also, Dr. Sam Fullendorf, who's in the Grand Dyke, uh chair, uh, is another colleague that, you know, the three of us have done a lot of projects together on, on various topics, and quail being high on the list.
1: Right, and we're, we're gonna mention Dr. Fullendorf here a little bit later. I think he's a Texas product. and know he did a lot of work down at the Sonora Research Station, and then he and an old colleague of mine, up here, Dave Engel, really, really rang the bell about the early 90s when they started talking about patch burn grazing or what y'all are now calling pirate herbivory and a tremendous amount of work has come out of that and we'll talk more about that as we get closer to the end of the podcast let's talk about quail research at osu and again when, typically when you think of quail in oklahoma you're thinking bob whites but i was raised there in the southwest corner and we had blue quail during the drought the year i tell people our blue quail were our drought insurance you know and then i know that if you're a student of quail for quail literature, you've heard of the name Sandy Shemnitz mm-hmm. who back during the late 50s, early 60s, did a monograph on the blue quail population out there in the western panhandle kind of thing. So pick it up from some of that. I mean, again, some historically very good work, some of the work by uh, uh, Alan Peoples and so forth at the, and Fred Guthrie on the pack saddle area. And then it kind of dropped off there for a 10-year period. So pick us up from the late 90s and kind of give us some idea about where you all been working at.
2: Yeah, about um, probably nine or 10 years ago now, the Oklahoma Department of Wildlife Conservation approached us about wanting to do a, a really large and long-term quail project. And and we we primarily focused on the Beaver River Wildlife Management Area and the Panhandle and Pack Saddle, which is where they had done a lot of that historic work with Dr. Guthrie. And we we that was a great project, had five or six graduate students come through. And then uh, we actually, Started another project that was broader, at four or five different study sites, different WMAs across the state. And so we've done, you know, probably about 10, 12 graduate students, mostly focused on Bob White, but delving a little bit into scaled quail. And now more recently, I've had several graduate students focused on scaled quail, because as some of your listeners may know, uh, we know a lot less about them than we do Bob White, particularly how to manage scaled quail. And I kept getting frustrated. It been you know, called out to uh, a property and not been able to give them good guidance on habitat management for scaled quail. So we've really tried to address some of those, those needs.
1: You know, as a kid growing up here in southwest Oklahoma during the 60s, habitat management was you graze the dickens out of it and you still had blue quail. It'd be yeah. blue quail under every low bush yep. out there. And then uh, in my opinion, uh, something happened to them in 1988 uh, that basically made them disappear and they've had a to my knowledge there really are no blue quail left there in harman county that i'm aware of at this point in time so uh you and i were discussing earlier today that everything we know about blue quail says they should be the hardier of the two Mm -hmm. and yet their populations tend to be declining in those areas worse than what the bob whites do they don't boom quite as well as the i'm sorry they don't boom as well as the bob whites but neither do they bust as badly as the bob whites typically
2: that's exactly right they're they're typically longer lived and you know what we've had several studies now where we have Bob White and scaled quail on the same property, so that's always nice to be able to compare apples to apples. The same landscape, same climate, uh, and we see that you know Bob Whites are booming and busting, scaled quail much more consistent. As you see, they don't seem to put as much effort into reproduction every year, um, and so they are more stable. But uh, they seem to always be at lower density. At least the places I've worked, lower density than quail, at least in the good years.
1: Well, we bid them good news because I I love to hunt blue quail. You know, the perfect situation is where you've got both bob whites and blues. You really don't know which you're going to point kind of thing. So I wish you all the best up there, and I I wish a speedy return, no pun intended, for our running blue quail as well. Well, give us a few of the highlights, Dwayne, that you all have discovered. No particular order, but just when you think of what you all have done over the last 15 years or so, what are some of the highlights?
2: Yeah, I'll start in the the east. Uh, We... Of ODWC funded project a few years ago we were uh, looking in eastern Oklahoma which you know most of that country there's no quail hunters left anymore because there's not many quail and so the wildlife department was really interested in that and we did a study on uh, forest management for bobwhite really trying to figure out at what level did bobwhite show up and there's some interesting results from that uh, we found a certain threshold at, at what where you remove a certain amount of canopy cover it was really critical for bobwhite and it's no surprise why there's no bobwhite in eastern Oklahoma's for succession. Most of the canopy's just closed in. So that was really beneficial for managers that want bobwhite in that landscape to have a target, get your canopy cover down to this level. Then moving west, some of the highlights we've looked at with bobs is uh, really focused on how temperature is part of their habitat, how they use temperature at different times of the year to make decisions on where they're going to nest, where they're going to take their brood and also how those things affect survival. And it's been, it's really opened my eyes up a lot to how important shrub cover is to Bob White. We know it's important for predator avoidance. It's also very important to not overheat or not to freeze to death. And so we've actually been able to identify certain shrubs that are used more in certain times of the year. And the take home from that to me has been the importance of shrub diversity. I used to think as long as you had shrub cover, you're good, but from this research, I've seen, you know, having a diverse shrub community is a hedge on different weather extremes. Uh, We've also looked at water and how it affects quail habitat selection, and on three studies now, we've seen that it strongly affects habitat selection, although there's little evidence that it affects survival. So it might in some years... Um, maybe in the the worst drought years, it, it perhaps does, but it, it sure does influence where they're at on the landscape and the research we've done. Um, and then the current research we're doing on scaled quail, we're doing a lot with winter habitat selection and roost ecology, trying to fill in some of the gaps, uh, especially times of the year when scaled quail have not really been studied very much.
1: Well, I was on y'all's website here not too long ago, and we'll give you an address for that towards the end of the podcast, but i uh, i came across some recent research that y'all done that colloquially was called who's your daddy
0: mm-hmm. where it
1: looked like it looked at the uh the parentage of eggs within a clutch of eggs the like bob watcher blues and which of those had multiple sires versus single. so summarize yeah. that one that's that's fascinating work to me
2: through, so through genetic work looking at uh, eggshell frag- fragments and then having feather samples from the attending adults we were able to determine for a given brood and clutch how, how many different males had mated to form that clutch. And on average, scaled quail were, were very monogamous. There wasn't a lot of funny business going on. You know, it was usually a strong pair bond, whereas with the bobwhite, on average, that hen was mating with two to three males. Sometimes as many as four or five males to make one clutch. So that goes back to what you said earlier about bobwhite being very boom and bust. It's as if bobwhite do everything they can to produce lots of young. One of those being mating with multiple males to up the chances of, of, of egg viability. But they also hand off their brood. You know They do uh, uh, you know, brood amalgamations where broods from different birds come together, uh, re-nesting, letting males incubate. All these things tend to increase the, the chances of getting broods on the ground. Whereas scaled quail are much more monogamous they're much more uh, you know, focused on sur- th- their survival, and they're not pulling out all the stops, so to speak, to produce clutches.
1: People of my generation, you're too young, but people of my generation would refer to that kind of monogamy as Ozzy and Harriet. Yeah. Uh, on TV, you know, they slept in separate beds, kind of thing it was so, uh, so conservative. But uh, really, when we started studying quail with radio telemetry back during the mid-90s, I kind of to break what we know about quail into two eras. BT before telemetry, and we thought Bob Watchman not were monogamous. Mm-hmm. We thought they were Ozzy and Harriet. And then AT after telemetry, you mentioned Wes Berger a while ago, and some of the work that he did early on in Missouri, as I recall. That's right. They described it as a flexible mating system, That's right. kind of thing. Yeah. So uh, it's just odd, again, that you know you got two birds in the same habitat, but they were raised in different neighborhoods. I guess uh, the blue quail being a product of the Chihuahuan Desert, and the, the Bob White coming out of the more mesic southeast kind of thing interesting work um so what are some i met one of your graduate students out here today madison what what is her study involving
2: she's uh, madison washburn is uh, working on the cimarron national grassland in southwest kansas that's a collaborative project with forest service and uh, kdwpt the kansas wildlife department and she's focused on winter ecology and a couple of things that we're really focused on with her project is uh, Shrub, ha- shrub selection in the winter. Are there particular shrubs that are more or less used? Uh, there's concern in that part of the world that uh, scale quail might be shrub limited. So that's one thing we're trying to help the department with. The other thing is roost ecology. Um, and there's several aspects of that. One, we're just looking at where they're choosing on the landscape uh, to roost. Is it random or are they being selective? And does that have any effect on overnight survival? But Madison's also going out, she has an experimental group of birds and a control bir- group of birds and the experimental group, they're getting flushed right before dark, multiple times a week to simulate late uh, hunting, hunting right before. Cause you know, a lot of these WMAs close early that's been a question is like does that actually affect overnight survival so she's flushing these birds and then following them up at night to see if they group back up into cubbies and if there's any overnight uh, mortality associated with them being busted up at sunset
1: are you far enough along in that that you can say how much nocturnal post dusk movements they do
2: yeah so we have one year so take that with a grain of salt but there is some movement at night we have uh, we have seen that scaled quail, at least in the wintertime, do typically uh, group up as bobwhite do, you know, in a, in a tight circle because some of the literature suggests that they don't always do that. And maybe they don't in the summer, but we've mostly seen them in tight groups in the winter wintertime. Uh, and they, even the birds that are broke up at sunset, they're almost always back together at night. And we've seen so far no effect on overnight survival from breaking those birds up late in the day.
1: We had a, blue quail study going on out in Pecos County back in 1999 and as you know when it comes time to collect those collars basically you're trying to flush that bird three or four times till it runs out of gas and then you put it in a dip net and you, you take the transmitter off but um, <clears throat> we got to where anytime we get out to blue quail they inevitably wind up in a in a hole that looks pretty snaky yeah. so we thought well we'll try this at night and maybe they won't be able to find the way, find mm. those holes and so forth and we can catch them better at night those, now, this was a moonlit night, but they had no hesitancy to, to run from us kind of thing and, and did did so quite proficiently. It, it, it was no better for us to try to catch those birds at night with a dip net than it was during daytime kind of thing.
2: Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, on some nights we've had a lot of success trapping them, and then on other nights, uh, just like you said, they will run as if it's the daytime and they have no problem evading us. So there does seem to be some variation probably with the amount of moonlight and also how many is in a group it tends to be that when they're roosting singly, they often run from us, whereas with in, their, in a group, they often will sit tighter.
1: One of the photographs that is recorded in my mind, we had a blue quail study going on out at Truth Consequences, New Mexico, back in the early 2000s, and uh, on the Armendaris Ranch out there, and it came time to, again, to, we had a, what we call a Rudolph transmitter, so we've got a a bird radio marked with a little beeping, a blinking LED light, so the the gist is you're trying to get up close enough to see that bird, throw a dip net over it and hopefully catch the bird so you can increase your sample size. And I'll never forget, it was a cold night. It was probably 20 degrees. We were out there tromping around about midnight, and there were probably 25 blue quail, and they they were in a circle no bigger than a soccer ball, and their tails were up like teepees. It, it was just one of those really cool things. I'm, I'm glad I had a chance to see it. And then when the graduate student brought the dip net down, he hit the one in the head with the, with the Rudolph transmitter and killed that one. So we wound up uh, not doing any good with that. I'm um, talk about some other areas. When I left Oklahoma State in 1987, they had just acquired a property out of West Stillwater called the Cross Timbers Experimental Range, C-T-E-R. And I forget, it was like 80-acre eight units or something like that. But it was a really neat study. or I foresaw good things to come of it. And... Uh, you and I were talking about a colleague of ours, David Engel, and I mm-hmm. see his name on a lot of publications mm-hmm. of various studies that have resulted from that. Are there still quail left in that, in that uh, Stillwater area, that cross-timbers kind of country?
2: There sure is. You know, that country, they did a lot of herbicide trials, and some of that was old go-back, um, so it's, it's very patchy. You know, there's open patches and forested patches, and with all the herbicide that was done, and then more recently, a lot of fire. And so all of that disturbance has kept it very much a mosaic and there's actually really good bobwhite numbers in that part of the world. So, and we've seen that in other places in the cross timbers that, you know, if you manage for quail or if you manage in a way that's, uh, that works for quail, you'll have them. Even in that central part of Oklahoma where a lot of people think all hope is lost, it, it's not that hard to produce quail in that part of the world with a little bit of effort.
1: Um, <clears throat> one of the studies, again, that I've seen that kind of goes countercurrent to what we've always been, we've always talked about, and that is the impact of the efficacy of disking as a habitat management tool. And, and y'all's results really didn't uh, confirm the, the, um, the, the standard policy kind of thing. So tell us about that.
2: Yeah, that, I was really surprised by the results of that work. I mean, I, I use disking a lot on our own personal property that we manage for quail. And especially dormant season disking, uh, we see very positive plant response. And lots of WMAs use it, um, both for quail, but also for dove management to try to get uh, annual sunflowers in. So I really expected big season uh, seasonal differences. We looked at three different seasons of disking. And what we found is, sure enough, depending on when you disc, you get a very different plant response. You know, sunflowers tend to... Uh, dominate if you disc during the winter months Uh, but we also saw desirable quail plants when we disc in the summer and when we just kind of added up the total amount of desirable versus undesirable plants it's kind of a wash so you got different plants from disking in the summer than you did in the dormant season but we got good plants regardless. And in that sandy soil, there wasn't a huge dramatic difference in the total amount of desirable plants, whether you disked or didn't disc at all. So I wouldn't take that study to say disking is never beneficial for quail. But I think what we learned is in some soils during some years, it it may be a neutral practice compared to what's already out there
1: and sometimes i'll recommend that if somebody's going to do disking in january that they disc two strips along the road and then they go on in you know and they want to do it three months later do two more strips where you can evaluate on your own property and I'm very high, and I sense you are too on on-site experimentation Absolutely. by that landowner. Yeah. So do something to just just be able to interpret what you see. At the very least, take photographs, if not a more detailed accounting of what the vegetation response is, and and make your own property your own laboratory kind of thing. So that's, Absolutely, that's a, there's a lot of information to be learned uh, from that kind of thing. Let's talk about uh, quail trends in Oklahoma again. I still go up to Harmon County, the very southwestern. County, I've got a little bit of property up there. Uh, not everybody knows this, but in 1974, I had to get married. Didn't have anything to do with the physiological status of my ride to be, is because my dad in law, future dad in law, had some of that good sandy soil country, Sandy Shinook kind of country. And I told him about, he's gone now, but I told him about seven, eight years ago that I was going to have the marriage in old after 40 years because there weren't any quail in that country right now. So um, I'm kind of familiar with what the situation is there in southwestern Oklahoma, but again, historically, uh, that, that Woodward country is, was about as good as it got kind of thing. So yeah. just kind of share, I don't know if we have any listeners up in Oklahoma or maybe that would travel to Oklahoma kind of thing in search of quail, but uh, give us some areas of where you would go. I'm not asking for your honey holes, mm-hmm. but give us some general areas around uh, different parts of the state.
2: Yeah, the southwest, as you said, is, is really uh, tanked since 2017. Of course, if anybody was hunting down there in 2015, 2016, it, it was phenomenal across most of western Oklahoma, and since then, everything has kind of dropped down. Northwest, uh, I would it, it's held, held up a little better, although it's nothing compared to what it was five or six years ago, but still decent hunting in, in pockets. We still have a lot of great habitat. We just need the weather to cooperate for two or three years in a row. That's what we need. Uh, as you move east, there uh, is a lot less habitat. However, when you find habitat, There are quail and they're more consistent than the West, which makes sense because in the Eastern part of the state, we're almost always getting over 30 inches of rain a year. Whereas in the West, you know, it's bouncing around. One year it might be 30, one year it might be 15. But in the East where where the weather is more stable and consistent, you can find quail if you can find the habitat. In some places in Southeastern Oklahoma, some of that timber company land where they are aggressively clear cut, there can be some pretty good quail hunting. It's not what you would expect in West Texas or Western Oklahoma in a banner year, but it's sure better than a bust year in those places. So that's where I've been hunting a lot in the past two or three years because I know I can find quail in Southeastern Oklahoma.
1: Yeah, that's impressive to me. Uh, I didn't realize anybody was having, you know, some success up in there. So that's, that's good to hear. <clears throat> and typically, uh, tell us about in those timber management kind of areas, where are you finding the birds at in that landscape?
2: Uh, so there's a lot of clear cuts and usually the first seven to eight years after a clear cut the herbaceous community and the brambles the blackberries is really desirable for nesting and for brood rearing and often in the fall and winter when we're there hunting we'll find the coveys on the transition between those clear cuts where they've probably spent most of the summer and the mature stands of pine, they'll often use those mature stands as escape cover, and they also are feeding a lot on pine seed that's fallen out of the trees. So they're typically in the clear cut, but near a forest edge.
1: While well, we're talking about forested ecosystems, and again, when we hold our, our colleagues down at Tall Timbers is somebody that's cracked the code, yes. kind of thing. I mean, they may spend quite a bit of money doing it, but through their uh, habitat management, their prescribed burning, and their supplemental feeding, and their control they've, they've cracked the code as far as sustainable good numbers kind of thing uh, is anybody in do you have clients or landowners uh, that are either native Oklahomans or they purchase that property and say I want to try to recreate what tall Timbers is doing as far as the intensity of management
2: I've had no one that wants to do quite that intense but there is a lot of interest and I, th- I think that's an area that we should put a lot more effort into to try to spend more time with those property owners and and, and show them what the potential is. Uh, I think a lot of them just, um, you know, the quail culture has been lost for so long there that it, they might not know what the potential of that landscape is anymore. Because I know when I take people and hunt some of these uh, clear cuts, they're shocked at how many quail, you know, and, th- and they'll say, we didn't think this could exist anymore in this part of the world. And you have to remember, most of the great old classic quail stories that we grew up reading were in the eastern United States. I mean, places like Tennessee, where where it's hard to even find a quail now, or South Carolina. So, you know, the potential's there. You just gotta have the will to do it. And Tall Timbers has proven that it can be done. You can have incredibly high numbers of quail in the eastern part of the United States.
1: Well, shout out to our friends and colleagues down there, Dr. Bill Palmer and Clay Sisson, uh, Reggie Thaxton down there, all of you doing great work and uh, Love to have you all come back out to West Texas because last time you we were out here, was that 2015-16 time frame, and we're, we're waiting for it to peak out again like that. Dwayne, who funds most of your quail research up, up there? Is it state agencies? Is it uh, private landowners? Just Where's your funding come from?
2: Well, we've been really blessed to have a, a diversity of funding sources, certainly state wildlife agencies. Uh, o- Oklahoma, Kansas, New Mexico are three that immediately come to mind. Um, also uh, a lot of support from U.S. Forest Service and BLM on some of these public land areas that we're working and then a lot of private support from, from whether it's the endowments that help uh, help with our research but also uh, private donors that just step up for individual projects or just want to contribute, um, you know, support for, for quail research in general. But it's been a very much a mix of state, private and, and some federal funding.
1: Well, and again, just like your stock portfolio, the diversity in that just helps you get through some of those tougher times when it's dried up on one location, maybe there's something else yeah. out there. So, uh, again, congratulations to you on that. We, we're basically privately funded down mm-hmm. here at the Rolling Plains Core Research Foundation. We get some money from a couple of agencies, but uh, I don't know, probably 95% of our money is coming from private donors, and uh, that's both good and bad kind of thing. You'd mm-hmm. like to, again, have a greater diversity, but thank goodness for folks like Park City's Quail and the other – coalition chapters that are basically underwriting our research out here let's focus in on the one thing that's maybe not directly your responsibility but i know you work with these guys and that's the emphasis and the interest in prescribed burning over the last 20 years or so and i'm going to take you back to 1984 when i was range specialist up there Uh, wasn't a whole lot of uh, interest in uh, doing prescribed burning Uh, it was They'd had a wildfire too, and it was just wasn't wasn't the right time kind of thing, but y'all have uh, y'all have an organism up, up there that I think does more to foster prescribed burning than any other, and that's the eastern red cedar. That's right. Which, as I travel across the state, I, I took pictures in 1984 of various landmarks, and I thought I'm going to come back to these locations at some point in time, just document the the change. But it's visible, and it's mm-hmm. almost. Uh, like you can feel those cedars getting. I had to get out of Oklahoma, I tell people, because I had juniperophobia. Yeah. I felt like they were just beginning to encroach upon on me. And again, that's uh, that may be the emphasis for why y'all have had a lot of luck with prescribed burning. But y'all have taken a lot of different directions, too, not only from the livestock response, but especially as it relates to uh, the livestock-wildlife interaction, mm-hmm. perhaps. And I guess we'll start right there with some of the work that Dave Engel and Sam Fullendorf did back in the early 90s. On what at the time was called patch burn grazing I think they've got a fancier name for it pyric herbivory I right. like that uh, but give us an idea of, of uh, who the players are up there and what y'all been able to do with the prescribed burning movement if yeah. you will over the last 20 years
2: yeah the three folks at OSU that really uh, deserve a huge amount of credit for the firework that's been done both research and the applied management Sam Fullendorf Dave Engle as you said and John Weir uh, John has really uh, sup- uh, did a, done a lot to get scientific information out to the public, but also to get landowners equipped to burn and to train them on how to safely do it. And the reason most of the landowners are showing up for those trainings is as you mentioned Eastern Red Cedar, they visibly see it. There's no denying that this plant has increased on their property and it's, hap- it's happened at a rapid pace within their lifetime. And they see the loss of forage for their livestock they see the loss of quail and other wildlife that they care about, and, and, you know, and they have concerns about other things, whether it be changes in pollen, uh, watershed effects, uh, you know, water uptake. So there's just this whole plethora of things about Eastern Red Cedar that brings a lot of diverse people to the table. You know, we have people at trainings that are completely quail-focused, completely livestock-focused, or, uh, or just, you know, we're worried about the aesthetics of the land. But they're all there to learn the same thing how do I manage this plant safely? And so we've spent a lot of extension outreach time helping people uh, to get into burn associations where landowners help landowners. So this person may have a lot of equipment, but they don't have any labor. This person has labor, but they don't have equipment. Well, we need to get you two together mm-hmm. and help each other burn. And, you know, and everybody feels more empowered and more uh, like and, and like they've got you know enough help to get it done and so these burn associations have really been a game changer for us and oklahoma burns um you know a couple million acres a year in prescribed fire and that's in addition to what we have wildfire so it's worked
1: Let's talk about the burn politics. I did a podcast a couple, three months ago with uh, with the certified prescribed burn manager Brian Treadwell down here, and we talked about the burn politics. And that burn politics can be like the quail population. It can be non-existent this year, but all of a sudden it's bust. It's a boom the next year. As far as you have a couple of wildfires, or you're you're uh, in a uh, La Nina weather pattern, and you had a couple of big wildfires, and all of a sudden you lose support in a hurry. Or, are you all being able to maintain your support? And when I say political, I'm talking about the county commissioner's court and those that are dealing with it at, at ground level.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's always, you know, when you have wildfires, there's always concern and people want to know, uh, you know, can we safely burn? So what we've tried to do is be very strategic in our uh, research and our extension efforts on prescribed fire. So when these things happen, we, we're not caught on our, on our, our, our heels. You know, we, we have media releases ready to go. And we have the contacts where we can pick up the phone and say, here's the information that your viewers need to know. And we're also in direct uh, contact with legislators. So, you know, we've tried to take a all, all, all hands approach to this and really think about it strategically, about how to, to cultivate a fire culture and, uh, and keep that fire culture around. And, and so far, at least, it's maintained. In fact, we did a, a survey a few years ago of perceptions of prescribed fire in Oklahoma. And we found the highest level of support for prescribed fire that's ever been reported in the world. It's 86% of the public strongly supported prescribed fire and controlling eastern red cedar.
1: And again, if if you've not been in country or if you haven't driven through Oklahoma in years, uh, that eastern red cedar encroachment is just visibly palpable. I mean, you can look at it, and all you have to ask the landowner is, where's this going to be 10 years from now? Yeah. And they can immediately see, and there really are no good herbicide options. If there were, people would be jumping on those regardless of the cost. But uh, the fire is basically the, I used to call it the Agent Orange for red cedar mm-hmm. kind of thing. and uh, anyway it's uh, kudos to y'all i want to go back to uh, dr fullendorf and again that patch burn grazing a little bit yes. are y'all being able to replicate that i know that was done up in the Tallgrass prairie preserve uh, are y'all being able to uh replicate that on on various either wmas or private properties and, and if so what, what do you see in there relative to quail
2: yeah so it has been used on both public and private properties it's not always exactly the way the research was was designed but that's okay because the research was never designed to get people to inc- to incorporate a certain grazing system. It was really to learn more about that interaction of grazing animals and fire and how we can use that to achieve various land management objectives. So we've seen landowners apply it in creative ways that fits their ranch operation, and that's as it should be because every property is a little unique. Yeah. And so there has been some interest in that, and, uh, you know, there, we haven't done – what I would say haven't done a really good quail study where we see the quail response to patch burn Uh, we know we know some about how quail respond to fire and grazing but as far as a patch burn and quail study uh, that's probably something that could use a little more effort in the future
1: I want to touch on one other thing we were talking about your your grad student looking at woody cover selection up in Kansas and so forth and you've probably hunted some of that country up in there north of Gaiman, up in uh, Liberal, Kansas, mm-hmm. north there. And if you get into some of those CRP fields whatever that's been planted back to native grasses and you're walking through big blue stem and so forth, then you jump a cubby of quail and there's not a stick of woody cover mm-hmm. out there kind of thing. How, how do you explain that? It's, I mean, I, everybody agrees that a plum thicket or a bush is where you want to go look for quail. But then you, you find those counter instances where there's quail out there in a sea of grass,
2: yeah, kind of thing. yeah, and I and I tend to see that more during the spring and summer than I do the fall and winter. You know, we find uh, birds in really odd places during the breeding season. In the winter, uh, it's more of an anomaly. They, they tend to be in the in the brush, but but you're right. And sometimes in CRP, you can have decent quail hunting. And what I typically see in those CRPs that are fairly woody deficient is they'll be using some type of forb that probably is a surrogate. So things that come to mind would be like giant ragweed, uh, which can be almost woody in Mm -hmm. structure and very open in the understory. So typically in those big CRP when I'll flush quail, if I look down at where the quail actually were, it's usually very still open at ground level with some overhead cover. It might be a forb or it might be bunch grasses, but it still has that structure that's more shrub-like. So I think that's what they're looking for is the structure. You know, I know you've said many times quail aren't necessarily the botanists. You know, they're looking for specific things, and there might be different plants that can meet that need.
1: Yeah. Well, again, uh, thank you for joining us today, Duane. I know you all are doing a lot of work beyond quail. I know you've got prairie chicken studies going on, lesser and greater prairie chicken research, and... Uh I never had the opportunity to work with those two birds, but, uh, again, especially the lessers undergoing the same plight that the Bob White has over on most of our western yeah. rangelands and so forth. So, uh, again, good luck to you there. A shout-out, again, to the the team of Engel, Fullendorf, and John Weir up there, and a shout-out to you all ODWC people. Uh, historically, that would have been Allen Peoples. And um, Wade Free and some of those guys have probably moved on at this point in time. But I've always thought it's important for the quail culture to have a quail culture in your state game agency.
2: Absolutely. And
1: ODWC had and maybe still has that. But uh, if your game agency is dominated by non quail, it tends to be reflected in their support sometimes. So um, appreciate all that. Is, is there anything that we've not discussed, Dwayne, that you'd like to share this morning?
2: No, I think I think we've hit the high points. It's just a pleasure to be here and to see this ranch. We're sitting here on a nice cloudy day, and everything's lush and green and birds are calling, so I'm happy to be here. Hopefully we'll have a great quail year.
1: I hope so. If uh, we have listeners that want to keep in touch with you and follow you on yep. various updates, give us some websites or whatever where they could subscribe to and, and or newsletters, whatever the case may be.
2: Absolutely. So there's a couple places they can find me. The first is just... Uh, email me, duane, D W A Y N E dot e-l-m-o-r-e, at okstate.edu. I'd be happy to talk to them at any time. And then they can find us on our, our, our website and also Facebook. If uh, Facebook, they can just type NREM, N-R-E-M-O-S-U, and follow mm-hmm. us. We have lots of postings on research and outreach activities. And, uh, and then we have a website, wildlifechairs.okstate.edu.
1: Well, again, uh, it's refreshing as an Okie and as a former research extension person up at Oklahoma State to see the revitalization, if you will, the focus on quail and so forth over the last 20 years or so. And uh, I know again, I, I keep up with your progress and so forth, you all did some great work and and we look forward to continuing to watch and to learn from the, the efforts that y'all are doing up there.
2: Appreciate it.
1: Well, Gary, that about wraps it up for us out here at the Rolling Plains Quail Research Ranch. Uh, It's been a pleasure to be able to visit with Dr. Elmore and share his insights with our listeners. And we'll be looking forward to speaking with y'all again next month.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Dale. Really enjoyed the program. Great conversation with you and Dr. Dwayne Elmore of Oklahoma State University. And congratulations, Dr. Elmore, the newest member of the Board of Directors of the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation. If you would like to know more about the foundation and past episodes of Dr. Dale on Quail, go to the website, quailresearch.org. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau. Thank you for joining us this month. Until next time. Support from Gordian Sons Outfitters makes Dr. Dale on Quail possible. Gordian Sons, the finest hunting and fly fishing shop to be found. Find out more at gordiansons.com.